Well, again, it's exciting for me to see all of you this morning. It's good for us to be together. Um, things are changing outside. Spring is here, uh, at least according to, the, to nature. I'm not sure with the date, and I don't know what weather lies ahead of us, but God is faithful, and um, I hope you're in rejoicing in, in His goodness to us this week. Sometimes when I visit churches, I wonder kind of what is their uh, process in deciding what they're going to speak about. And I hope here at Faith that you sense some organization or some direction, some plan in, in what we present and what topics are chosen. Um, <clears throat> I really appreciate Tim and Fred uh, helping out. Each of them are taking a Sunday a month, and Tim actually will be preaching next Sunday. You all can look forward to that. Um, and sometimes they've linked arms with me and what I'm doing, and other times they've chosen their own, and that's quite all right. But this year in particular, I'm trying to give a, a, a direction for us as a congregation. And uh, you might recall, um, in January, I started this current series of messages saying that this year can be the most productive year for you spiritually. It can be. No matter how long you've been following Christ, if you're a new in your walk or if you've been following Him for a long time, as some of us elderly ones have been, this year has a potential to be the greatest you can make the greatest strides in your faith and in your growth with Him. And we talked about some of the things that are required for that. And it, it's not going to depend on other people. It's not going to depend on the circumstances you face. It's not going to depend on your environment. It's primarily going to depend on your and my attitude toward two things. One is toward His Word. Will we embrace it? Are we open to hearing it afresh? And secondly, are we willing to allow Him to be Lord of our lives? And that's scary sometimes for us. We like to be in control. We like to, to kind of decide how, you know, how this is going to happen. But the more that we open our lives to His Lordship, the more that we open our hearts to His Word, the more potential there is. Because we have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And as Paul says, we have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. How much power is that? That's the power that is available to us to follow Christ. Now, our challenge is to access that power. And so we've been talking since then about some of the things that are required, things that we need to look at. And I just want to call your attention to the last two messages, which really kind of lay the groundwork for where we're going this morning and subsequently. Two weeks ago, I talked from James about being doers of the Word. Not only hearing the Word, but doing it. Well, sometimes that's easier said than done. Some passages of Scripture are just so clear, and, and, and we wish all of Scripture could be that way. You know, why couldn't God just give us a list, these hundred things, doon, 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 doon. But He doesn't do that. Often in Scripture we find we, He teaches us and instructs us of what He wants by relating the stories of other people and how it worked out in their lives. For instance, Joseph. How do you deal with a situation when you're, you're trying to do everything right and it seems that everything is going wrong? That's when we look at the life of Joseph, for example. So be endures of the word, not just hearers. And for a lot of us, we've been hearing all of our lives. Hearing and reading. But how do we become doers? How do we grow in doing? And that involves seeking to understand what the scripture text says to us, and then how do we apply something that was written in the first century? How do we apply that to this century? So that's one aspect of the next couple of weeks that we won't be talking about each Sunday. We'll be looking at different areas and relating. The other of that has to do with last Sunday's message. What is the church supposed to be like? And we talked about unity. 
The scripture calls us to be unified. Well, how can we be unified in the body of Christ? And sure, sir, I'm not talking about individual fellowship necessarily, but the body of Christ. Because we all miss the point at some point. And so when we look at scripture, we're not always going to see it the same way. We're not always going to apply it the same way. How do we relate to one another then? Well, very clearly, we are called as the followers of Christ to, to understand and receive the truth of Scripture. And that sometimes will cause divisions. That sometimes will cause us not even to be able to associate with people who claim to be believers. There are some who do not believe that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. If someone identifies a Christian and cannot accept that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God, that He is the only way to the Father, that He died and was buried and rose again and He's coming again, those are just examples, that will distance our fellowship from them. It will. But beyond truth, we apply things so differently, don't we? We're going to talk about that this morning a bit, and we're going to be looking at that later as well. Second thing we talked about, when unity, we talked about then... um, how do we love one another? Because there's something about in within our human nature that wants to be right. And that if you aren't like me, then you're not right. <laughs> and the scripture speaks to that. And so those are some things that are intention that we're going to be talking about. So this morning, I want to lay, you're going to hear some things this morning that, that, I, that you may have heard before. I hope you have. But if you haven't, you won't make note of because I'm going to come back to those. You're going to say, oh, that's something Dave said a couple weeks ago. Last year, one of the common refrains that you heard me over and over and over and over again say when we went through the series on the Pharisees and then how shall we then live is the why is more important than the what. Okay? So you're going to be hearing some things like that this morning that we're going to be looking at over and over in the subsequent weeks. Well, How can we be doers of the word? We're going to be talking in this series of biblical interpretation and application. How do we do that? Because that is something we need to learn to do individually and not just look to someone else to give us a list. Each of us has the Holy Spirit within us and we need to learn to yield to the Spirit and to ask the Spirit to open our eyes and to illumine us and guide us. Now there is great value in receiving instruction from others, but so often we are not opening ourselves to seriously studying God's Word. You remember we looked in James about continuing in the Word, not just reading it, but studying it, seeking to understand what it says. I want to remind us this morning that all of us have our own truth. We do. We need to learn to guard our tendency to treat Scripture the way you hear today in media that many politicians and judges treat the Constitution of the United States. They simply bring to it their understanding of it without considering what did it mean when it was written. You hear that in in, um, media today. And what often happens if we're not careful is that the only meaning of the Scripture is the meaning that we bring to it. So, one of the things that you will hear me say over and over again, and it's not original with me, but it it is so true, is that the scriptures mean what the writers meant when they wrote them. Okay? Scripture today cannot mean differently than what it meant when it was written. Nor can scripture today not mean today what it meant when it was written. And you see, whenever we mix that up, we err in our identification of truth. When we take the truth and say, well, when Paul wrote that or when Jesus said that then, but now that doesn't mean that. We err. And so our task as believers in handling the word is to carefully seek to interpret and understand the truth. What is the principle? What is the truth of the text? 
What was that truth communicated to the original audience? And then bring it to us today. Because it is for us today. God's word does not perish. It does not pass away. It's the same today, yesterday, and forever. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on you look at it, situations are changed. People are different. Cultures are different. But that doesn't diminish the truth of God's word. And hopefully that will come clear later. Well, the title I've chosen this morning is When Application of Scripture Goes Wrong. When Application of Scripture Goes Wrong. I'm convinced that more mistakes are made in applying Scripture than interpreting Scripture. You see, we all want to be faithful to the Scriptures, but we make a serious mistake when we, in journeying from the biblical text to now, when we take a certain application and merge it with the truth of God's Word, make it one in the same. I'm certain there are times when if the writers of biblical text could see how it's being applied today, that they would say, wait a minute, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant when I wrote that. And so in our efforts to be passionate about the Word, to be bold, to be helpful in in studying God's Word and communicating truth to other people, in our efforts to do that, we can easily make the error of saying God said something when God did not say that. In other words, we may relate a helpful application, a helpful direction, but give it the authority that thus saith the Lord, and go and do thou likewise, when that is not what God is demanding. Perhaps you've heard it said before that we must be careful in looking at Scripture that we don't see something that is descriptive, accurately portrays what happened in that situation, and take that as being prescriptive. That that means that we must do that. Let me give you an example. The book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Wonderful story of redemption, right? Redemption of a, of, a, of a situation that had gone so wrong. Well, that story is the story of Ruth, a, a heathen, a pagan, pagan girl, a Moabitess, who accompanies her mother-in-law, Ruth, uh, Naomi, an Israelite, on her return back to the land of Israel, back to the God that she served before. And while that biblical text has some wonderful things to say about relationships. And there are, there are conflicts in relationships. You have, you have courtship of Ruth and, and, and Boaz. You have the relationship between Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. So you have, you have in-law relationships. And, and while there are some wonderful things, and you, you may hear teaching and, and re-teaching about that, listen, the book of Ruth was not written to solve relationships. That's not what that book was written for. So we must be careful that in our understanding, seeking to apply the meaning of the book of Ruth, that we don't make it say something it doesn't say. Well, someone said, well, wait a minute, what's the problem with looking at Ruth and, and teaching and preaching the way in-law problems were solved there. And the problem with that is, when as a teacher or a preacher, in our churches, in our Sunday school class, in your Bible studies, wherever, when, when we declare Scripture, we do so with a certain authority. You know, as Augustine's once said, he said, what the Bible says, God says. Do you agree with that? I, I hope you do. What the Bible says, God says. So, therefore, we have to be careful that we don't, for instance, with the book of Ruth, bring observations 
about what happened with Ruth and Boaz and Ruth and Naomi and say, God says this is the way it's to be. That's not what God says that's the way it's to be. That's the way it was, and God worked through that. But that's not instruction for courtship today. That is not necessarily direction for in-law relationships. And if we're not careful, our hearers and we ourselves, we may very well understand our instruction and application this way. If I don't deal with my courtship the way Ruth did with Boaz, I must not be doing it right. I must be disobedient to God. And that's a serious error. That's saying God said something that God didn't say. And actually, when we do that, we actually undermine the authority of the Scripture that we actually are teaching. We actually water it down. And unfortunately, people come to believe that, that anything that their minister or their Sunday school teacher or their Bible study leader, anything that they say that has a biblical flavor to it, that somehow that is what God says. And the long-term effect of that is that it's almost like a mythology is believed. You all understand what myths are, fairy tale. Myths have a, an element of truth, but they also have a lot of puff, a lot of extra. And unfortunately, human nature is such that, that we tend to gravitate toward the puff, and we live there. We embrace that, and unfortunately, eventually, what often happens with people when they get turned against Scripture is that they, they find out at some point that, wait a minute, God, what they believe God promised, actually God never said. Let me give you an example. Over the course of the last year or two, I've heard and been involved in discussions increasingly with marriages that are in trouble. Situations where spouses have, have parted ways. Some cases even divorce has happened among believers. And this question has often come up. I've heard it more than once. Well, wait a minute. If, if a wife will only be subject, be submissive to her husband, they will have a happy marriage. Does the Bible say that? No, the Bible does not say that. Now, you may be surprised this morning. You may say, wait a minute, I've heard ministers say that. I've been to seminars that have said that. If the wife would just be submissive, or if the husband would just love his wife the way Christ loved the church, they will have a happy marriage. The Bible does not say that. No, it does not say that. What the Bible says is that a wife has specific responsibility to submit to the leadership, the headship of her husband. And a husband has specific responsibility to love his wife as Christ loved the church. But nowhere does the scripture say that if a wife is submissive to her husband, she will have a happy marriage. Nor does it promise that if a husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church, that he will have a happy marriage. A marriage still could just, it takes, it takes commitment of both parties. So that's just an example. Um, when we say something that the Bible does not say, we say something that God does not say, and, and I think that's heresy of application when we do that. You see, the challenge is to faithfully and correctly interpret Scripture, identify the truth of Scripture, and we can call all the body of Christ to rally around that. No matter what our background, no matter what our culture is, we all need to rally around the truth of Scripture. But then when we seek to apply that to our time and place, that's much harder than what it may be at first glance. And it's as such, since it's so hard, that often results in disagreements. 
Difference of application or different practice. And so on the one hand, we need, to, we need to seek to understand how we go about that. And then the other, as I mentioned last Sunday, is how do we relate to other believers who don't apply Scripture the way that we apply Scripture? Now, this in no way diminishes the responsibility that we have as individuals to apply Scripture, or local fellowships have to apply Scripture, or denominations have to apply Scripture, but it does speak to how we relate to one another. And unfortunately, far too often, we allow difference in application to create ill will, distrust, a demeaning spirit, a refusal to fellowship and cooperate with one another. Divisions occur in the body of Christ that grieve Christ. It never should happen. You see, while we all tend to want to package our application with truth, we want to put it together, we must be able to distinguish those two. Because when we put them together, we then declare that God says something that God never said. And I hope I can, I can give you some examples of that. So, as believers, we must guard the truth of Scripture. We must call the body of Christ to receive the truth of God's Word. But what about the application process? Let, let's talk about that a little bit this morning. You know, there are times when we can take what I'll call this morning a necessary application direct from Scripture. There's no question about it. For example, open your Bible this morning to Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. And I could choose numerous examples here, but I'm going to choose one that's very simple. We're going to get to more difficult things perhaps in subsequent weeks. But Matthew 5.44, we find this verse. Jesus says, love your enemies, bless them who curse you, do good to those who hate you, Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, the truth of that text is as clear as a necessary application. What was Jesus talking about when he said those words? What was he communicating to the people that heard him that day? And how can we bring that from then till now? Well, I think we can, fair, we can very clearly and fairly say to one another, do you have enemies? Do you have an enemy today? How should you treat him? You should pray for him. You should love him. You should bless him. That's a necessary application. Necessary because it, it comes directly from the truth of God's word. It, directly from what Jesus taught. Well, wouldn't it be wonderful if every text was that clear and the necessary application was that clearly understood? You see, we can take that text, the truth of that text, to the body of Christ at large. This is the truth of God's Word. This is how we treat enemies. We love them. We bless them. We pray for them. It doesn't matter what culture you live in, doesn't matter what time you live in. If you are a follower of Christ, that is the truth of God's word that you need to embrace. We encourage all the body of Christ to do that. So sometimes texts are so clear the way they come across. Flip over a couple pages, though, to Matthew 19, and we find Jesus speaking to the young man, the rich young ruler that comes and says, what, what do I have to do to, follow, to, to receive eternal life? And Jesus says to him in verse 21, Go, sell what you have, give to the poor, come and follow me. Now I think we pretty readily know, if we say that that is the necessary application of Scripture, if all of us today are to go sell everything we have and give to the poor and come follow you, we've got some real problems. So you see, we have to seek to understand what was the truth that Jesus was communicating to that young man that day. It wasn't about his possessions. It was about what stood between him and Christ. And in his case, 
It was possessions. In our case, it may be other things. We have to be willing to lay it all down to follow him. So that scripture is not calling for believers, followers of Christ, to not own anything. To never own anything. You sell everything, you give everything away, you have nothing. That's not compatible with other scripture that we have. So you see, we have to be careful in declaring a necessary application. We have to seek to study the word. And if you study that passage and understand what Jesus was communicating with that young man, it wasn't about possessions. It was about what does it take to be a follower? Leaving everything, allowing Christ to be Lord of everything. That's what he was, was talking about. Well, let me give you a second example quickly. Is slavery wrong? I've been involved in discussion where people say, well, wait a minute, it sure doesn't sound from the Apostle Paul like slavery is wrong. If we look at Ephesians 6, Paul says that slaves or servants are to obey their masters in everything. And in this country, in the 18th century, 19th century, in the 1800s, when we had slavery, there were slave owners who repeated that verse to their slaves. The scripture says, you are to obey me in everything. Now, our problem is, when we study Paul's exhortation in the first century, Paul was talking about slaves in Roman society. And we find that his answers are not to the questions that we want to ask about slavery in this country. Because slavery, Paul talks about in Roman culture, was so different. Individuals often sold themselves into slavery. You often were better off as a slave economically than you were as a free man. And most slaves were free by the age of 30. And Roman culture did not allow a slave owner to treat their slave any way that they wanted to. It was expensive to have a slave. And if you walk down the streets in Roman society, you could not readily tell, distinguish who was a slave and who was a free person by the color of their skin. So you see, if we don't realize that Paul was speaking to a situation entirely different than the slavery that marked our country in the 1800s, we can easily arrive at an errant understanding of what Paul had to say about slavery. And applications of Paul's teaching that slaves are just to be and they're to answer to their masters. And Paul never, never intended to support the institution of slavery as it was in this country. So you see, another difficulty we encounter in applying the New Testament teachings of Paul and other writers is understanding that the text was originally directed to people that we don't know and we don't hear. It's like listening in on a telephone conversation. You hear someone talking and you assume you know what the other side is saying. But you're just hearing one side of the conversation. We're hearing one side of the conversation and unless we put forth effort, we may misunderstand what is being said. So, what do we do then with texts that are not as clear as Matthew 5.44? Love your enemies. Well, two things I think we can do, and we're going to be doing in subsequent periods. When we look at a passage of Scripture, what picture of God is in that passage? What is the principle of God? What is being displayed? Is it the holiness of God? Is it the love of God? Is it his redeeming interest in man? Is it his power as creator and sustainer? What is the picture of God that we are called to respond to? And then the second thing is, what is it about human depravity that's opposed to that? That is so helpful. If we can get those two things, and then that will help us in understanding and properly applying the text. And the reason that's so helpful is that God remains the same. 
His word remains the same. Across culture, across generations, across centuries, God does not change. And guess what? Human nature hasn't changed either. We still want our own way. We still are arrogant. We still tend to be proud. We still have a propensity to be disobedient and to excuse our actions. And so when we look at those two things, when we look at a passage of Scripture, it's very helpful in applying. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is discussing there the issue of, of believers eating meat offered to idols. And the picture in that passage, and I won't take time to go in depth there this morning, is that God is in the process of redeeming people to himself from worship of idols. Therefore, Paul says, if I wound my brother's conscience by choosing to eat, if I wound his conscience, I wound Christ. So, what's the conflict there? What's the picture of humanity? People want their rights. I have a right to eat whatever I want to. And that's where they clash. So, it's so easy today, and I want to say, especially for those of us who have grown up in conservative environments, it's so easy for us today to always want a specific application. We want to know how to have a happy marriage. How to raise my children to faithfully follow the Lord. How to deal with stress. We want concise steps with a guaranteed outcome. And guess what? You're not going to find it. It's not that God's word is inerrant or, or is errant, not sufficient. It's that human nature is insufficient. And as teachers as preachers of God's word and our efforts to provide helpful answers. We want to be able to help people. We want to be able to provide answers to all the myriad of questions people have. If we're not careful, we will say things in the name of God that God did not say. And it's not that necessarily the, the suggestion or the application that we're giving cannot be helpful. It may not even be wrong. But when we say that that is what God is demanding, when God is not demanding that, we're in error. We may want to have a thus saith the Lord in every specific area of life, or from every scriptural text, but we're not going to have it. And a more correct and helpful way to apply scripture in these situations is to identify the truth of scripture. And then call believers to apply that in a meaningful way. To not just hear the word, but do it. How are you doing this in your life? And challenge one another. Do this. Show this in your life. Now, occasionally, an application, as I mentioned with Matthew 5.44, it's a necessary one. There's no question. We can call one another to that. It, it's, it's directly a, uh, in Scripture. But there are at least four other possible applications I want to mention this morning. And, and you could think perhaps of others. But sometimes there are applications that are, that are likely. This is a likely application. There are applications that are possible. Applications. There are applications that are unlikely. And then there are applications that are impossible. So I want to take you to an example this morning so you see what I'm talking about. Romans 13, chapter, uh, verse 9. Romans 13, verse 9. You don't necessarily need to turn there. It's a very simple. It's found elsewhere in Scripture. But I just want to give you an example. This is one that um, did you, perhaps, have, hopefully, you're applying in your, in your life and you can kind of see where your application might come. In Romans 13, verse 9, we find these words, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, the necessary application of that command, I think, is clear. There is a necessary application for all believers. You shall not have a sexual relationship with a person who is not your spouse. Would you agree? 
That's very clear. We can call everybody who names the name of Christ to that application. Well, that application, we can say, carries the authority of God. That application, we can say, thus saith the Lord. You shall not have a sexual relationship with someone who is not your spouse. Well, what might be a likely application? A likely application of that scriptural text could be you should avoid a strong bonding relationship with a person who is not your spouse. Now, that likely application is certainly supportive of the scriptural text, and it certainly is helpful in protecting a believer from the snare of adultery, but that does not carry the authority of thus saith the Lord. You cannot say that that's a requirement of a believer to be obedient to the truth, thou shalt not commit adultery. You can't say that. Well, what might be a possible application? A possible application of this text might be you should avoid traveling regularly with a person who's not your spouse, just the two of you. And I know there are ministries and there are congregations and there are believers. When I managed the co-op, I would not travel with my secretary. If we had to go somewhere, Gerd went along. It was an application. And it doesn't mean that that's not correct. But you cannot say, thus saith the Lord. Thou shalt not. That application does not have the authority of God, and it is not demanded by obedience to thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, what might be an unlikely application of scriptural text? You should not have lunch with someone who is not your spouse. Now again, that application certainly supports the scriptural text. It certainly is, is a helpful guideline. It's certainly acceptable. But we cannot say that the scriptural text, thou shalt not commit adultery, would require you. If you're sitting somewhere having lunch and someone comes and sits down that's not your spouse, that you'd have to get up and leave. We can't say that. Well, what might be an impossible application? Well, it could be something like this. You know, you and your wife should not go out for dinner with another couple because you're with someone who is not your spouse. Now, I think we see what happens. Would that be helpful in keeping you? And affairs start sometimes that way. They have. Couples who are best friends, affairs have started that way. But that's an impossible application of that passage, the truth thou shalt not commit adultery. You cannot say, God says, two couples cannot go out and eat dinner together. So while we have here, we have different, we have a necessary application. You shall not have a sexual relationship with someone who's not your spouse. That's necessary. Then we have several Possible, likely, even unlikely. What do we do then with believers who choose different ones of those? There is nothing wrong with a believer who, who says, look, I'm not going to travel with someone who's not my spouse. Or a ministry that requires that. Or a local fellowship of believers that asks that of their members. There's nothing wrong with that. But how do we relate to other people who don't choose that application? You see, the error occurs when we take, we add to an application the authority of God says. We then make the application the doctrinal truth. And that's when we are in error. 
Only with a necessary application can we preach and teach. Thus saith the Lord. And we need to be able to make that distinctions. In our Sunday school class, in our Bible studies, certainly from the pulpit, we need to be able to make that distinction. There is always a principle of truth in a text. And we must seek to understand that and unequivocally declare that. And call every believer to that truth. But how that principle applies in our lives at times will differ depending on application. And when we fail to make that distinction, we actually weaken our declaration of truth. Because it's not hard at all, and I hear this, growing up in a conservative setting, I've often heard this. Well, that's what this church or that minister or my parents have said, you must do this or not do that because the scripture says this. And they say, show me where it says that. And you can't. And so what happens then is you weaken the authority of the word to that individual. They say, see, the Bible doesn't say. So now it doesn't matter what I do. Oh, yes, it does. But you weakened the authority of the word because you contaminated it with an application that you have decided has to be. Now, I know there are some churches, some parents, some ministers that resist this because they think it eviscerates their authority. I need to say our authority does not come from our ability to issue decrees. Our authority must come from the Word of God. It must come from that. And so what often happens then is we get this idea that my family or my church, or my ministry organization, the way that we do it, is the only right way. And if it's the only right way, then anybody who doesn't do that way must be a, an unbeliever. And so you see what happens? We have six churches within one mile of this building. We don't agree on everything. But we should be able to challenge one another to the truth of God's word and understand that we may not apply it the same way. And there's nothing wrong with us as a congregation having agreed together certain ways to apply scripture. That's, that's fine. But it should not cause us to speak ill will and disparaging comments and push the body of Christ apart. What do we think heaven's going to look like? You think it's going to look like everybody that practices everything just like you? Are you kidding me? That's not what Revelation says. Believers from every culture, every language, they're not going to practice everything the same, but they are going to be committed to the truth of God's Word. I'm convinced of that. Well, I want to wrap up. Our Sunday school teachers are looking at me. One other quick example that I'm sure you've heard before. Ephesians 6 says... That we are to honor our parents. Honor your father and mother. And it's found elsewhere in scripture as well. That's a very clear directive. A necessary application is regardless of your parents, regardless of your age, while it may look different when you're a child in their home versus when you're a, a fellow adult, you are to show honor and respect to your parents. Very clear. Let's apply that. When it comes time for your parents that can no longer live by themselves, there are believers who believe that that scripture requires you to take them into your home. Now that's a possible application. That's a wonderful thing if you can do that. But at times, depending on the situation of your home or their needs, it may be more honoring for them to be in a residential care facility. But you see, when we see and teach that to honor your parents means that you will provide for them in your home as long as they live, thus saith the Lord, we're in error. We've contaminated the command of Scripture to honor our parents. We've contaminated it. 
And we actually undermine Scripture because then people look at that and say, wait a minute, I don't see that in the Bible. So we discount the Bible. We discount other things that the Bible says. So that's what I want to call us to this year. And we're going to be looking in subsequent messages at some specific, we can't cover the whole Bible, of course. But Scripture where I want us to look together, and, and I invite you to help me in this process. What is the truth of this text? Okay? What is the truth? And now what are, is there a necessary application? Like in Love Your Enemies? What are some likely possible applications? And then are some applications that that's impossible. That can't be an application of that. So, again this morning, we're going to be looking at Scripture. I want to remind us, when we look at Scripture texts, the Scripture can never say today, mean today, what it didn't mean when it was written. Love your enemies. What did that mean when Jesus wrote it, or said it? But like also, it cannot not mean today what it meant then. Jesus was talking to real people who had enemies in their lives. Personal, political, national. They had enemies. The Jewish people were living under the oppression of Rome. And so we cannot say, but well, the Bible today, though, does not speak to enemies like that. It's not about your personal enemies. It's not about your national enemies. It's not about your political enemies. We can't say Scripture does not mean today what it meant then. Nor can we say it means something today that didn't mean then. God's Word doesn't change. So that's going to be our challenge as a congregation. And, and I, I welcome feedback. I do not have a corner on the truth. And I want to say again, all of us miss the point at some point. If you ever think you don't miss the point anywhere, you're in error. We do. And we need each other. And I read and study and listen to messages from wide range of denominations and people. Because my call, and I hope your call, is not primarily to be faithful to a system that you have been taught and have embraced. But your call is to be faithful to God's Word. And often, especially in conservative circles, when people talk about falling away and the danger of falling away, they're not talking about falling away from this. They're talking about falling away from the way the church has always taught and applied something. And if you vary from that, you have fallen away. That's not what the Scripture talks about. So this year, no matter what your understanding has been in the past, as we look at various subjects, I want to encourage you with me, let's identify the truth of Scripture and embrace it. Let's allow, let, let's allow it to grip our hearts. And then let's not just hear it, let's do it. Let's do it in meaningful ways that demonstrate, that allow it to change us. If it only stays in our head, it doesn't change us. Like I said, young father, and I had a time, you need to be spending more time with your family. I said, I know you're right. I know I need to. I haven't applied anything. Even if I tell my family, look, next weekend, we're going to take the afternoon off and go to the park. I still haven't applied it. I haven't applied it until I do it. Right? And we're not always going to do it perfectly, but that's no excuse not to do it. And so that's my call for our congregation. It, it, I hope you're up for this journey. I want to, I, let's, let's get serious next couple weeks. Let's look at Scripture in fresh ways. And, and I, I'm convinced that, that we, 
that we're going to be able to interpret and identify the truth of God's word. And then I hope when we look at applying it, that we can understand this may not be the only way. But it needs to be a way that's meaningful for us. We need to follow our conscience, what God is speaking to us. And then when we look at fellow believers, be able to encourage them, accept this truth of God's word, and, and find a way to, to do it in your life. It's meaningful for his glory. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I'm so burdened for us. I'm so burdened for us as a congregation that we would not get lost in the maze of arguments and divisiveness outside of our fellowship and within our fellowship. Father, may you give us a fresh desire to study your word. May you help us understand the truth of your word and embrace it. May it become real to us. May we see as a call in our lives. And Father, then may your spirit guide us in doing it. Give us a love for one another. Give us a love for the body of Christ. May we not allow Satan to diminish our witness to those that are lost without hope. May we have a clear vision of who you are, your holiness, your character, your plan. This we ask in the name of Christ.